Hello, this is The Energy Gang, a discussion show about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Ed Crooks. On today's show, we're going to be looking ahead to the COP28 climate talks in Dubai, which start at the end of November, and we're going to be looking at technologies for long-duration battery storage. Joining me on the show to discuss those topics, I'm very pleased to welcome back two old friends. Emily Grubert is the Associate Professor of Sustainable Energy Policy in the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. Hi, Emily. How are you? Ed, good. How are you doing? Yeah, very good. Thanks. Very good. Great to have you back. Also, a pleasure to welcome Joseph Mikert, who's the Director of the Energy Security and Climate Change Programme at the Centre for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Hi, Joseph. How are you? Yeah, very well. Pleasure to be here, Ed. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you both very much indeed for coming on the Energy Gang today. So I was saying, I want to start off by talking about the next set of UN FCCC climate talks, COP28. Now, these talks are still five months away, but I do think it's well worth talking about them now already, because I don't think, and I was racking my brains to see if there had been another set of climate talks that had been this controversial, this far ahead of them actually starting. There's been a wave of criticism about COP28, most of it focused on the choice of the venue for the talks, which is Dubai and the United Arab Emirates, which is, of course, a large oil producer, one of the largest oil producers in OPEC. And there's also been a lot of criticism of the choice of president for the talks, who's Sultan Al-Jaber, who's both the UAE Special Envoy for Climate Change and also Group Chief Executive of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. And we've had a lot of people saying, this is completely wrong. You shouldn't have a senior oil industry executive trying to run a set of climate talks. And in fact, there was a group of US and European politicians who last month actually wrote to the UAE asking for Sultan Al-Jaber to be replaced. So all in all, doesn't at all look like a great backdrop for success of the talks. And these are anyway going to be difficult talks. I think it was generally considered that COP27 in Egypt last year was not a massive success. And we're still in this period when the global energy system has been under a lot of strain following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Commodity prices have eased back quite a bit from the peaks they reached last year. But even so, there's been quite a lot of questioning, particularly, I think, in a lot of developing countries about the energy transition, exactly the pace at which it should progress and the directions it should go. So these are certainly going to be some sensitive talks. And as I say, they don't have a great backdrop, I think, at the moment for success. So that's what I want to talk about and get your views on today. Joseph, maybe start with you. When you look ahead to COP28, what looks like success on those talks? What would you really like to see as a good outcome from the meeting? Well, Ed, thank you for starting us off on such a positive note. (laughs) Right. I'm not a historian of COP. So were there meetings that happened in the 90s or early 2000s that were as controversial? Maybe. But this definitely has the the feeling that we're we're entering the most controversial in advance in the sort of like post-Paris period where COP is really about implementation. It's less about how we're going to negotiate uh, deals to avert climate change. And I, I think there's like a couple ways to look at this challenge, personally speaking. It's correct that there is disharmony in having a presidency in a large oil producing country. I, I totally get that perspective. Would we have the same trouble if it was in Houston, where the US is also a large producer? I'm not sure. I understand that that Sultan Jabbar is is a questionable choice for a lot of people. I also think if you're looking for 
competent leader in the UAE, where else would you go? Not to defame anybody else in the UAE, but like the head of the national oil company and a renewables company is a powerful voice in that country. And I would note is a powerful voice in the energy community writ large, right? And, and so I think it's less about, for me, is this one cop going to succeed or fail under, under exactly under his leadership? But what's the way in which this cop can succeed as one instance of a long-term global dialogue? And there, I think this leader, this country create new opportunities that you wouldn't have had if you were in Houston or some Western capital uh, and create challenges that the leadership there is really going to have to deal with, right? You want to take on the presidency, you got to be able to show some results. So Emily, how do you feel about this? When you're looking ahead to COP28, do you think people are justified in being gloomy and concerned about it? Yeah, I mean, this is uh, maybe a bad way to live my life, but I don't expect a ton out of the cops at this point, to be honest. And maybe that's not fair. There have been some really important things that have come out of the cops. And I think that especially kind of highlighting people's concerns about climate change and giving a global forum to talk about that every year is not a bad thing. But in terms of actually, like, are we going to see major, major action coming out of the cop? I'm not sure that I would have expected a ton anyway. There's an interesting thing, I think, particularly about this one being so much of a flashpoint around the oil production, especially in the context of just, you know, COP negotiations do involve a lot of unanimity processes and things like that. And I think that if there's a positive about this being very much visibly focused on an oil producer, that to some extent is really showing people that these are countries that are involved. Obviously, they are countries. And when you think about this as being an international process, that's evident. But I think that there is some value, particularly in the context of not necessarily seeing a ton of action from the cops to just being like, look, this is part of that conversation is always part of that conversation. I think in general, we should ask for more from the cops than we do. But given what I think I at least have come to kind of expect from them, I think it's a useful way of highlighting some of the really difficult tensions of these processes. If I can jump in, Ed, I mean, I think one of the one of the things that is going to be evident because this is a year of the so-called first global stock take, right, where countries are agreeing how to evaluate whether or not everyone is meeting their NDCs and how those combined NDCs are aligned with the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement, limiting warming well below two degrees centigrade and towards one point five. This was already bound to be a tough conversation, right? Emissions continue to go up. It's not inconsistent with sort of bending the curve and getting toward a two-degree pathway, but if we're really starting to see the cracks in, in keeping 1.5 alive as a climate target, and there, the sort of the aesthetics of the UAE's presidency and the just pure physical reality of the challenge that we face might just be, by coincidence, impacting each other. No, I, th I think that's a, a kind of a stunning figure, and I wish that we talked about it more. But yeah, emissions are still going up. <laughs> it's been 30 years that we've been having international talks about this, and emissions are still going up. You're absolutely right. It is a stunning figure. There's a lot to unpack there, and I want to unpack more of it in a moment. Let's just, first of all, though, just think about exactly that point, as you say, on emissions and what's happening to them. My position is very much, I guess, a sort of glass half full one, which is the trajectory we are on is actually a lot better than the trajectory we were on, let's say, 20 years ago. And I think there's a tendency for people often to say, oh, look at all this process, the UNFCCC, all this talk about decarbonization, uh, supporting renewables, etc. All of that 
it's useless, it's ineffective, hasn't done anything. I think that's fundamentally wrong. I think that we are on a much better pathway than the one we were on 20 years ago. And in particular, I think we're on that pathway because the long-term future for coal looks much less strong than it did 20 years ago. And the idea that we have an enormous amount of coal in the world in the sense that we were going to burn all of that inevitably with obviously catastrophic consequences for the climate, I think that's gone away. And I think people can see that as energy demand grows and electricity demand grows in particular, you don't just have to get all that from coal-fired power plants. We do have other options now. And I think whether the UN has kind of been driving that, or you can debate that, I guess, but certainly I think the UN has been part of it. So I suppose I would not be totally pessimistic. But then, as you say, when you think about Paris and the goals of Paris and what we're aiming for there, climate change well below 2 degrees C, ideally at just 1.5 degrees C, that still does look very difficult. We're not on course for that. Well, this is a problem of the UNFCCC's creation, though, right? Like the when the agreement sets a target at 1.5 or 2, and now the whole structure of pledge review and build up ambition is meant to create momentum to your goals. If the goal had been, listen, we want to we want to bend the curve and reduce expected warming at 2100 from a baseline of four or five degrees, which is what it was when I started my career. I completely agree that the positive momentum we've seen over the last decade is incredible. It is great progress. Challenge is that the UNFCCC set itself this other cap goal, and that's the one that is looking increasingly untenable. So, Emily, where do you come down on this? Are you glass half full or glass half empty? I mean, I think <laughs> it's an interesting question. I agree with you that obviously we're doing better than we were on a path to do. That said, I think comparing to the counterfactuals of like, where could we have been if we had taken this more seriously earlier? It's really useful, I think, to continue to talk about all the things that we can still achieve and all of the kinds of problems that we can still prevent. I do think it's also really important to kind of make the point that we have failed in a lot of ways. Like we have already seen quite a lot of stuff that didn't have to happen necessarily. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Maybe it's not necessarily something that you could see having worked out much differently, but we are not on a path for the kinds of temperatures that we kind of globally have decided we would prefer. And I think that it's actually really important to acknowledge that this is goofy, but I feel like a lot of um, <laughs> my general view of like action movies and stuff like this is that we often get a little bit of a, a bad message for these kinds of things in the sense that it's always like Bruce Willis or Dwayne The Rock Johnson is going to come save you at the very end. And you can mess up for like two hours of these movies that are way too long and still somehow at the end, like Bruce Willis kicks a helicopter out of the sky and everything's fine or whatever. And like, this is not one of those situations. I think people do know that, but I think it's also important to recognize like we have actually lost a lot already. And so the the kinds of ambition that we're talking about, yeah, like we're doing better than we maybe could have, but we didn't we didn't give it our best, I think. Emily, you just gave me an incredible vision of Bruce Willis <laughs> as a large direct air capture machine. Yes. Right? Just yes. If Bruce Willis is so tough, he just inhales like opening up. CO2 and <laughs> exhales oxygen. Yeah. This is one of these robot ones where like everybody is secretly turning into like a Borg or something like that and they start breathing CO2 and exhaling oxygen. Yeah. I love it. Or like just be a tree. <laughs> yes. I'm also thinking about then the, the movies with the more positive messages. You know, in Die Hard, all the, uh, the terrorists instead decide to kind of, you know, get worthwhile careers and to kind of, you know, 
go to college and study and, and become productive members of society. Well, in Shin Godzilla, they spend most of the time uh, talking about practices and institutions that will be required to eliminate Godzilla. So there, there are some precedents. <laughs> yes, yeah, there are, there, are, there are some precedents. It's very true. <laughs> so now I want to pick up, uh, Emily, with you on something that uh, Joseph was just raising, which I, I think is really interesting. And I definitely think I agree with this about Going back to this central point about the location for COP28 and uh, choice of Sultan Al-Jaber as the president, I think it's a point really well made that the battle to address climate change inevitably has to be a global effort. Everybody needs to be included, including the large oil producers. They cannot be left out of the conversation. You could have a fine discussion in Costa Rica or wherever, and everyone could sit down and agree with each other and say, yes, yes, we'll definitely do whatever it takes to get to 1.5 degrees of warming and then be bypassed by the rest of the world going on and doing what it wants to do and not being part of the process at all. And the ultimate outcome then is that you have no chance of hitting your targets. So, I mean, personally, I think the argument is absolutely right to say that you absolutely need United Arab Emirates and other countries like them in the debate and actually then therefore having a COP in Dubai is a really good idea. Do you agree? I don't know how far I'd go on that, maybe in the context of the COP process, because again, I think that the kinds of things we expect from the COP process are maybe not the kinds of things that we expect to really make shifts. What I do think is useful and what I think is actually really important in conversations like this is making a lot of the value judgments and kind of the institutional design constraints explicit. And the way that we see COPs working already, like again, everyone kind of has to agree and then everyone has to do things. But a lot of that is really behind the scenes and not that obvious from the outside. But yeah, again, like the United States is a huge oil producer. We're obviously very much embedded in a lot of these kinds of conversations and often do make calls that either reduce the intensity of something or maybe allow another country to do that. Like there's a lot of kind of passive power being wielded by many countries, not just the United States, but just thinking about who actually is the one that's standing up there saying, I disagree with this, and who's kind of relieved that they did that. That kind of thing is hard to see sometimes. I think there is a lot of value to making it explicit that like, yeah, this is a unanimity process. And maybe that means, look, we got to go a little farther outside this process to have the countries that want to be deeper movers actually do something without necessarily the boundaries of the COP. But yeah, I I think that it's useful in the sense that it is revealing some of what I think has been going on for 30 years already. I'm not sure that I necessarily get on the same page of it's good to have, and you know, the the UAE being a country as well, not just an oil producer, but the notion that the oil producers are the ones that need to have the core seat at the table, I don't think I necessarily agree with in general. But in the context of the COP, I think it reveals a lot of things that are true regardless. If I can take the positive case for a minute, I mean, just Think about a couple areas where there are these kind of long-standing, multi-decadal political challenges that try to get resolved through the COP process. Like, and the two that stand out to me are sort of what you could roughly describe as the north-south divide, right? How do you decarbonize an economy that is already developed versus how do you fairly decarbonize one that is still developing, right? We're all familiar with the sort of the challenge of that. And then there's there's also the um, the need to build out carbon capture and carbon containment and bring along a whole bunch of companies that are not necessarily going to do stuff purely out of governance, but are doing stuff to respond to investor pressure, to consumer pressure, building these coalitions of the willing. 
And that was like the real victory of the last few cops seems to be the ability to identify or at least give a, a platform to small groups that are focusing on one particular sector, one technical challenge, sharing knowledge, sharing financing. And who does this bring on? Who does this create opportunity for? National oil companies are a great example, right? Been a bugaboo of a lot of people in the climate community, not sure how to engage, you know, very different set of incentives than like a large integrated oil company has. And here you've got the COP president now, like the head of a national oil company. And so if you're starting to think about like, let's take methane emissions as an example, how do national oil companies reduce methane emissions in the same way that a lot of the IOCs have started to do, which is important for climate outcomes, important for like reducing global warming potential over energy transition. This is like potentially a very good thing. I'm not saying that like, results have to be there, right? It's not enough to just like, have a different meeting. The different meeting has to create a different outcome. But I think there is like an interesting way of approaching that problem. And the same on the north-south divide, right? These like UAE, other Gulf producers are right now very cash rich. Climate finance is persistent issue. Let's see if there's an opportunity to increase levels of climate finance around adaptation, around funding for methane, around funding for other abatement technology that comes out of this taking place in the UAE. Yeah, those are great points. I want to focus then on something that's very specifically that Sultan Al-Jaber said, which is one of the things that's been a real flashpoint for criticism from environmental groups in particular, was he when he talked about essentially sort of drawing a distinction between getting off fossil fuels and ending the emissions from fossil fuels. And he said, I mean, I've got the quote here, this is recent comments at the, the climate meeting in Bonn recently, I think it was, where he said, if we're serious about mitigating climate change and reducing in a practical matter emissions, we must scale up carbon capture technologies. Our aim should be focused on phasing out emissions while allowing socioeconomic progress. In other words, absolutely building in a continued role for fossil fuels long term in the global energy system, but seeking to address the emissions from those fuels. And that was something I think that rubbed a lot of people up the wrong way. And people said, this is kind of excuse making for the fossil fuel industries. And this is something where essentially you're offering uh, carbon capture as the solution when it's not proven yet, absolutely not proven at scale. And I think the argument of critics would be, it'll never be proven. Emily, what do you think about that? Do you think those critics have got a point? Yes, uh, I probably am one of them, honestly. I think one of the things about carbon capture in particular that's really worrying to me in a lot of ways is that there are a couple of spaces where we probably need it and like need it in the sense that there is not a backup. And I'm talking about things like cement. I'm talking about things like carbon removal from the atmosphere, these types of things where having that technology is really important because there's not really much else you can do. Like with cement, a lot of those emissions are not associated with fossil emissions. You can get the fossil out of the system and still have a lot of calcining outcomes. Like those kinds of things, it's really hard to imagine what the alternative is. You know, you can use less material, you can use different materials to some extent, but like there's a reason we use so much concrete. And I worry a lot about the kind of capture, so to speak, of carbon capture as something that is very obviously applicable potentially to fossil fuels and then to also these other things in the sense that when you have people standing up there and saying the entire point of carbon capture is to prolong the life of the fossil fuel industries, obviously people are going to be like, wait a minute, that's that's kind of a different thing than I've been told. I thought this was about climate mitigation and I thought this was about using very difficult and very expensive technologies to do things that we need them to do. 
I think you lose your social license to do carbon capture in the spaces that we need them when you have that really, really strong association, basically, with the prolonging of fossil fuel infrastructure. I have a lot of feelings about this, but I think the one other thing that I'll say right now is just that it's very interesting to me how much we've stopped talking about the fact that fossil fuels are depletable. When we start talking about carbon capture being a way to just eliminate the emissions from fossil, carbon capture is really energy intensive. And basically, Part of the reason a lot of fossil producers like it is because you have to use more energy in order to do it. And so you have more product sales like this is in the coal industry, a particularly visible thing. But you run out at some point or they start to become more expensive. And we can get into Hubbard and all of that sort of stuff if we want to. I don't think that's useful. But it is interesting to me, this notion that carbon capture allows you to continue to use fossil fuels forever. No, it doesn't. Like you have some conversation at some point where you run out (laughs) eventually. I didn't think we were going to be getting back into the peak oil debate on this show. I think that's a... It's a <laughs> I will always bring the peak oil debate. <laughs> that's a fascinating subject and a good one for another time. My feeling is I go to a discussion I once heard between the chief executive of BP and the chief economist of BP, and the chief executive of BP was talking about this is some way back in the past, so no kind of current individuals in any of those positions uh, relevant to this story. And uh, Chief Executive BP was saying, well, you know, worried about essentially making your point. Fossil fuels are finite. They're exhaustible. There's a risk that um, supplies will run very short. And the chief economist saying, well, people have been saying that for more than 150 years now. And it turns out that every time it looks like supply is going to be constrained, there are innovations in technology essentially created because of economic incentives that have unlocked large new sources of supply. And I think absolutely in the case of both oil and gas, you could say the past 20 years or so pretty well bears that out. So yeah, I mean, I'm, I have to say, unconvinced by sort of neo-peak oil type arguments. Yeah, that's it. And I mean, absolutely. Like we know this is McKelvey straight up, just like you can do new technology, you can make things more expensive. There's more resource there for quite a long time. I think what is kind of important though, is that in a lot of the other kinds of considerations that you look at, generally speaking, the new technologies that we find to find more are either really expensive, environmentally intensive in some way, socially intensive in some way. Like this gets harder over time and maybe you end up with breakthroughs that make it easier than it started. But you do have impacts of getting to these deeper and deeper parts of the McKelvey diagram, essentially. And I think that in general, when we talk about eliminating greenhouse gas emissions, it's really, I think, kind of a a narrow minded way of looking at what the fossil fuel industries are. Like there are other kinds of impacts and their impacts of everything, but the ones associated with fossil fuels are particularly impactful. And so like just thinking about what it would take to actually get to that next tranche of resources, how long, and yeah, you know, it's been a hundred years, but what human civilization's been 10,000 or so, like how long does this last is, I think it's a reasonable question to ask when the kind of vision for the future is this very, very energy intensive kind of CDR plus a lot of CCS all powered by fossil forever. Yeah, fair point, fair point. Joseph, I want to bring you in in a moment because I could see you were looking very thoughtful when uh, Emily was uh, sketching out that critique of of the whole kind of carbon capture proposition. Just before I do, though, Emily, just one thing, um, footnote, and it's embarrassing, I don't know what this is, but you mentioned a McKelvey diagram. What is that? So it's this, I think, USGS person from back in the day that basically sketched out a two-dimensional diagram showing the differences between resources and reserves, essentially. And the idea is the axes are financial 
and technological, essentially. So the more technology you have, the more resource you can convert into a reserve. The more money you have, the more resource you can convert into a reserve. But it's a way of thinking about what's like approved reserve versus what's the resource base and which pieces of those are accessible. But the notion is basically you can access more of it with more technology or more money. Basically. Oh, that sounds fascinating. We should stick something up on our social media channels about that. I, yeah, I always like a podcast with good footnotes, and this sounds like an excellent one we can have. Joseph, though, as I say, you kind of um, you seemed to be reflecting on Emily's comments about carbon capture. What do you think about that critique that essentially it's, um, I mean, I don't know, Emily, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's somewhat being sold onto false pretenses or that there's a kind of, as you say, there's an unequivocal need for carbon capture, but not necessarily always for the uses that people are talking about when it's kind of pitched as a broad-based, all-purpose climate solution. You know, I'm very much two ways about it. I, I understand and appreciate Emily's point, right, that it has failed thus far to live up to its promise, right? The number of large carbon capture facilities currently running, capturing CO2 and storing it underground, it can be counted on, like, I think two hands. I was trying to look up the exact number, but it's very few. And some, some notable cases have failed. Right, they they turned the equipment on, then they turned it off, then the plants closed. Now, um, on the other hand, like we know as a broad category, carbon management has to be part of reaching the climate goals that the world has set for itself. Right, two degrees C scenarios, one point five scenarios have a ton of carbon capture. Is that point source carbon capture on coal plants? No, because we're now thinking less in a stabilized CO2 in the atmosphere world and more in a like net zero, reduce atmospheric CO2 kind of scenario planning. And so we need to find routes to negative emissions. If the path there, politically speaking, is we're willing to spend on CCS because that helps build networks, of infrastructure, knowledge, reduces the technology cost of then using bioenergy and carbon capture and storage, which like every integrated assessment model, forgive me for bringing them up, says we need a ton of, um, does that allow us to like activate EOR, enhanced oil recovery in some meaningful way? The, the, the like kind of the chemical, the mass balance tells you, you can get half a ton of, of CO2 down into a reservoir per barrel of oil that comes up and slightly less than half a ton comes up in oil that will eventually be combust, combusted. You can, you can create an engineering scenario, it might be expensive, but you can create an engineering scenario where that's part of a net zero solution. And in a world where we've just gone through the passage of stuff like the IRA, where the whole, a big part of the political argument is build political constituencies that can accept energy transition, that see interest in it, and be willing to pay more, right? Efficiency in climate policy is sort of like off the table when it's stuff we like. Why aren't we looking at these other things that can build, help build larger international coalitions, they can help build larger coalitions in the United States, where Emily and I are both speaking from. Uh, I, I think it's like, you know, it's, it's worth, again, performance has to be proven, right? Like, if we're actually going to talk about phasing down unabated fossil fuel use, but not fossil fuel use, it would be nice to see some abated fossil fuel use. Um, but I don't think we should write it off. I think with the political argument, this is something that comes up a lot. And I hear the point. I think what gets left out of that conversation, though, is that there's other pieces of a political constituency. And what we're actively already seeing is that 
people that are pretty on board with saying like, okay, I'm going to accept the environmental impact of having some pipelines. I'm going to accept the environmental impacts of a large industrial facility when I know that it is to stabilize the climate or when I know that there's nothing else we can do. Those people get very, I think, justifiably pretty upset when then it's like, actually, we're going to do maybe an order of magnitude more of this so that we can basically prolong the lifetime of fossil fuels in a way that we don't have to. And that part of it, I think, is what gets left out of this equation is that maybe immediately the political constituencies are more about like, can you bring countries along? Can you bring the already powerful people along? But in terms of what happens five or 10 years down the line, I think you lose the opportunity to have people that are a little skeptical of this give you any grace when you've indeed proven that you're actually not doing what you're saying you're doing, which is basically doing what you must. Yeah, it's a fair point. And in Washington, a lot of people like to bring up this assessment that if you, if you had this robust carbon management system in the U.S., it would be like two to three, you would move two to three times the volume of fluid that the current oil and gas system does. For some people, that's a sales pitch. And for some people, it's a terrifying nightmare. And the, for the people that it's a sales pitch, those are generally the already powerful people. And so it's not necessarily surprising that these are the kinds of coalitions that get the attention early on. But it's also, you know, with the COP conversation in particular, kind of what COP is designed to try to avoid. So I want to move on at the moment, but just before we do, uh, to your point, Emily, about the COP conversation, just thinking again about the UNFCCC process and this succession of COPs that we have, and those questions about, has it worked? Has it failed? Is there an alternative? Could there be a better way of doing things? I slightly feel like a landing point on UNFCCC process is it's the worst possible system for global climate mitigation, except for all the others. You know, we have no alternatives. There's no other way to do it. We just have to get everybody together and make the progress that we can make. But maybe that's a lack of imagination on my part. I know, Emily, what do you think? Is, could there be something better? Should we be organizing things differently? And if so, how? I think maybe where I come down is that the order of operations has gotten a little bit backwards. So the COP being a way to bring all the countries together and really have conversations that do take consensus seriously, I think is important. But a lot of countries are waiting for COP to take their cues on what to do, it kind of feels like. And I think that in a situation where countries actually do just make the decision, like get the steel in the ground, close down the emitting things, like let's prove that we're actually committed to this and let's do it. You see maybe more individual country action earlier on, but I think that is more helpful for creating consensus than trying to agree on everything before people start doing things. So I think personally, I'd rather see countries, especially the ones that actually are committed, just do it, have the bravery to just do it and actually kind of come with some maybe a moral high ground to the cop rather than saying, you know, we'll we'll wait until you say you're going to do it too, and then we'll start doing things. Joseph, what do you think? I think I roughly hold your view, Ed. It's necessary and insufficient. I think, you know, the Paris Agreement gives us a, a, a real signpost to aim for, right? And we have to have a process by which countries are coming and saying how it's going in some formalized way. The prog like what but what will underlie the progress toward any of these goals is going to be, I think, stuff that's on the side of the official negotiations, by and large, right? The governments are never going to move enough money to to reach climate goals. They're they're the the sort of the the con the the limitations of the UNFCCC process earlier is always going to be there. They're extant. What we will see is this continuing to be a thing where like these coalitions of the willing, focusing on the next best step, 
will be built. Some of them will succeed. Some of them will fail. But it's a good opportunity to give, you know, like a uh, annual check-in. Absolutely. And we will, of course, be following the progress to COP28 and the talks when they happen and the outcomes. And we should come back, I think, six months from now and review what, if any, progress has been made. And one other thing I should flag up right now, which I think is going to be really important, we've heard again in some of the discussion previews, people looking ahead to COP28, this question of climate finance and the money of various kinds, both grants and aid and investment that the rich countries essentially promised to the poor countries in order to support their efforts to transition to lower carbon economies and also to uh, protect them from the impacts of climate change and that money which has not been delivered, certainly not in full, um, as it was pledged all the way back in Paris back in 2015. That is a really important consideration. I think something else which we're going to have to watch very closely and something which I think really kind of, if you want to put items on the debit side for the UNFCCC process in general and to raise real concerns about whether that process is working or not, the question of why hasn't that climate finance been delivered is a really important one. That's definitely something that I think you could point to as say and say it's been a real failure. It's almost worse in a sense that there's kind of the pledges have been made and they're not delivered on. That's worse than the pledges being made at all because it's very corrosive to confidence and to kind of mutual trust and understanding between countries, which obviously is a really important part of global climate action. We have to be moving together. Countries have to be able to trust each other at least to an extent because if they don't, Nothing's going to happen. It's a collective action problem, and we need to tackle it collectively. So, as I say, that's just something else which I, I do think we're going to need to worry about. But I want to move on because I want to talk about the other um, subject I'm keen to get into today, which is long duration energy storage. The reason I'm one reason I'm particularly keen to get into this is it's something I've just been talking about recently. I was uh, on a trip uh, to the Bay Area last month, meeting various people involved in the energy business. One of the companies I met there is called ESS. That's a company which makes flow batteries. Um, flow batteries is sort of a different battery technology from the lithium-ion batteries, which are sort of the dominant technology right now in everything from your phone to your Tesla to big installations that go onto the grid to support the grid. Um, there is as is well known, greatly increased need for more solutions to help manage the stability of the grid as the proportion of variable renewables, wind and solar, on the grid rises. And long-duration energy storage is going to be an important part of that. And I'd specify long-duration because those lithium-ion battery uh, installations that are proliferating now, particularly in the US, there's a lot of that going on, a lot of investment going into those. But those typically have durations measured in hours rather than days or weeks. They're fine for intraday shifting of demand, matching supply and demand within a day. They're not at all great for anything beyond that to tackle uh, needs beyond that. You really need a different technology. That's where flow batteries have been generating a lot of excitement. They 
don't have to be mobile. They're very specifically geared at fixed installations. So some of the size and weight issues that are big concerns with, um, of course, with batteries for EVs. Uh, we don't care about that for batteries for grid support. And that is where these flow battery technologies, typically using iron, can really come into their own. Um, as I say, this company called ESS I was talking to, they um, have been, they are actually manufacturing product. They have real orders. Their batteries are getting installed in various places um, around the country, around the world. The other company that's generating enormous excitement around flow batteries is this company called Form Energy. They raised a lot of venture capital money. And just last month, at the end of May, they broke ground on their factory in West Virginia. And they're talking about starting production and getting batteries coming into service next year. So this is something which is now getting very close. And they've been announcing orders customers that want to buy their product. So potentially, it seems like it could be an exciting time for this technology. One of the big issues in decarbonization, potentially having an important new solution just coming onto the market. But Emily, when you think about this, when you look at this um, long duration storage issue, some of these new companies, these new technologies now emerging, how do you see it? Do you see positive signs that we're really starting to crack this problem? Yeah, I do. I, the flow battery thing in particular is really kind of neat to see. I, I went on a big flow battery rabbit hole in college, like maybe 15 years ago, just kind of being like, what are these things? And like, why are they different from the other ones? So the fact that there's actually companies doing it now is encouraging, I think. Like you say, long duration electricity storage is a really important thing that we know that we need. And there's a lot of different ways to think about doing it. But when those remain theoretical, it's not that helpful. So having that in place, and I think particularly as we start really thinking about electrifying a lot of pretty high consequence types of services, so home heating in particular, having the confidence that we can actually supply electricity through really challenging conditions maybe I think is a kind of a prerequisite to having people make those leaps and kind of taking those risks. So I'm really excited to see more of these things actually showing up and I hope they all work really well. So tell us a bit about these technologies. Maybe give us the two-minute version of your uh, college research on this. What is, what, what's the kind of the simple way to explain what a flow battery is and how it works? Yeah, so the notion behind a flow battery is essentially that you are able to flow a resource through. It doesn't all have to be stored, I think, is kind of the, the easiest way to say that. And that allows you to do some things that like a lithium-ion battery can't do. It also helps you with state of charge issues is what I understand. But again, this is a really long time ago that I actually was looking into this. I'm sure that the situation has changed a little bit. But yeah, the way I understand it is that you solve a lot of the discharge issues this way. Yeah. And some of the numbers are amazing. So if you look, for instance, at what um, Form Energy is talking about, they've had orders, for instance, for uh, a battery system, which is 15 megawatts of power output, which would make it pretty modest by the standards of the storage systems currently being installed using lithium-ion batteries, but 1,500 hours of energy storage. In other words, it could run at full output for 1,500 hours on that, have 1,500 megawatt hours of energy storage. That's a colossal amount. And that's already just, just one system with really very, very um, significant storage capacity. So that does sound very exciting. And Ed, you were just at the company. I'm curious if they talked about why they're not just calling flow batteries fuel cells. That's always been a little confusing to me. 
Do you know, I didn't even think to ask that question. My understanding is they basically are fuel cells. They're maybe not the same exact thing that we talk about with like a natural gas reformer or something like that. But fundamentally, from a technological perspective, I think they're basically fuel cells. But this is one of those questions I've been like too embarrassed to ask for a really long time. No, but that is fantastic. This is the reason why I love doing this show is I'm always learning things from people who are smarter than me and know more than me. So that is a really fascinating pointer. And as you say, I'm going to have to go away clearly and do some more research on this one. Joseph, when you think about long duration storage, these flow batteries now are just apparently starting to come onto the market. Uh, How excited are you about this? Do you think these are really kind of going to be a revolutionary technology? I think they they definitely stand to be. I mean, the, the problems that they can resolve are obvious. You have a lot more intermittency on the grid. You're sort of weather dependent in a high renewable scenario. You need some way of either spreading out the resource through time or space. And batteries give you a great way of doing it through time. Right. So, you know, I've spent a lot of my work thinking about how do we build enough transmission in, in between regions in the United States to balance loads and to take advantage of geographical distribution of resources. Batteries give you the same thing in time. And if they can come down in cost, it seems like they're going to be really important. I'm not an energy modeler, but every energy modeling study I read that looks at the issue says they're very important for a low cost, high reliability, low carbon grid in the future. Um, in preparing for today, actually, one thing I did learn, which is the extent of my knowledge on LDS, to be totally honest, is like I think of them as being really applicable in like the US context, the Europe context, the Japan context, but equally important in places like India, where high deployment of batteries in a model give you much less coal generation and, CO- and the associated CO2 emissions in the absence of any other climate right? It's like, if you don't have to be keeping a coal plant burning all the time, if you can offset this huge renewables potential that is intermittent with batteries on that sort of a few days to a week timescale, it looks like you get huge carbon benefit just from their deployment. So I'm starting to think like, wow, the next interesting area of research is sort of like trying to figure out the carbon benefit of increased long duration storage. And how should we think about including that in subsidy schemes, power market design, et cetera? Yeah, that's a great point. That is a really fascinating idea. And when you think about these kinds of technologies, long duration storage, against what I suppose you might think of as the alternatives, which are other options for providing what you might call clean firm power, dispatchable, uh, zero carbon electricity. So you might think about nuclear, maybe fossil fuel power generation with carbon capture and storage given, you know, putting to one side a lot of the issues we've just been talking about. You might think about probably hydrogen-based power and so on. You might think about geothermal. How do you weigh up long-duration storage and these kinds of new battery technologies against some of those other options? I'll be a little pedantic for a second in just saying that when we think about clean firm, to me, that implies that it needs to be very rapidly up and down dispatchable because we know renewables are down dispatchable. That's not hard. You can turn them off very quickly. Um, but they're not that easily up dispatchable unless you kind of plan for that. But I think we often lose sight of the point that carbon capture fossil plants are not really up and down dispatchable very quickly. Like they're big steam plants. They take a while to turn on and off nuclear. Similarly, not really up and down dispatchable on those kinds of timescales. So where LDES starts to be really important, I think, is in those extraordinarily rapid response kinds of situations. This is another place where hydrogen combustion turbines probably make some sense just because they can be turned on immediately and they can be turned off immediately. 
Where I also get excited about some types of long duration electricity storage in particular, though, is in the notion of being able to put them in different parts of the grid. I think one of the issues that I worry about a lot as kind of a reliability safety kind of person is that really a lot of the time the issue isn't necessarily the supply stability. You might have plenty of supply power grids still going down. If you have the ability to actually inject power downstream of a downed transmission line or a downed distribution line even, like that starts to get very, very important. This is partially why people like the idea of putting batteries in their houses. But even having some sort of like flow battery or something at a community level that can actually overcome some of those issues, even when they're downstream of the generation, I think in addition to supporting a lot of the supply side, it could be a really important opportunity. Can I sort of like recast that comment to see if I understood it correctly? So like typically you think about these batteries as being important for like smoothing out the supply side on the power system, right? So, you know, you get some sort of low wind event for a few days and you're able to run these batteries. Should we also think about them as kind of smoothing things on the demand side or are you are you making more of a regional state? I think both. And this is the nice thing about some of these units being pretty modular and pretty small potentially. And this is a lot of the debate about, you know, is this a generation asset? Is this a transmission asset? Is this a distribution asset or is it a storage asset demand side asset? But yeah, storage asset. There's a lot of different ways that you can classify them. But I think that is partially because they are small enough and modular enough that you could put them in a number of different places on the system. And so, yeah, like really thinking about them both for that kind of conventional thing of making sure that the supply is smooth, but also handling it when you have, yeah, like Shreveport was out of power a lot this week. Depending on where that event was, if you had some way to re-energize parts of it, maybe that's actually something that some of these kinds of technologies can do in a way that big power plants can. So you mentioned Shreveport, Louisiana being out of power. It feels like just in the past few weeks, again, the US power system is being tested by a lot of challenges. We had up in the northeast, the smoke drifting down from wildfires in Canada, impacts there obviously on solar generation and so on. Then we have right now, as we're recording this, there's what they're calling a heat dome over Texas, affecting many of the surrounding states, including Louisiana. Extreme conditions then, which are in some cases forcing blackouts, leading to power systems tripping out. Of course, then really dangerous situations for many people. If you've lost power, you've got no air conditioning at the same time as the heat is soaring. This can be absolutely deadly, literally deadly for some people. To what extent can storage, long duration storage in particular, help address those issues? Is this something then that if we had a lot more of this installed on the grid, when we have these kind of incidents, we'd actually have a much more resilient grid? Assuming that they work under those extreme conditions, this is something that I say a lot, but I think when we talk about the kinds of resources that might be able to fulfill that clean up and down dispatchable role, people often point to combustion turbines, people often point to a variety of different technologies. And I think that actually really asking how they perform under extreme conditions has to be part of the conversation, even as much as, you know, are they available? How fast do they turn on and off? Because what we see is that what we've traditionally used for that rule, natural gas-fired combustion turbines, basically can't handle super high heat and can't handle super cold cold, those kinds of things. And so maybe these systems will be able to do this better. But I think it remains to be seen how they perform under dynamic and extraordinarily difficult situations. But I think we should design for it. They don't really exist yet. So we can design them to do this better. I share the optimism and the, the qualified optimism. Like I get from an engineering system standpoint, 
there's a lot of qualities here which are like distinct from existing generators that could add a lot to the system. When I talk to policymakers, when they think about an era of a rapidly transitioning energy system, more electrification and climate change, resilience and reliability are the highest on their list for how we should design a system. So I guess then the question is, how are we going to reward this new technology or how are we going to create markets that want to see it built to the appropriate level? And there, I, I just actually think there's an open playing field to try to figure out how do you get people to actually invest in this stuff. And I'd be interested in Emily's thoughts on like, where are we going to see these systems deployed, right? Are they going to work well in regulated spaces? Like, is this where ERCOT's rules or lack thereof create like lots of interesting opportunities for seeing where these are best used? Like, how do we, how do we experiment through the market to actually discover what is most useful here? Yeah. And I tend to be a little bit more of a uh, just require it guy, but I agree. I think there's some interesting market opportunities too. But yeah, there's, I think, maybe a little bit of a regulatory opportunity here. And again, as we speak right now, there's a very uh, active debate in Texas over what they do to improve the resilience of their grid. And there's a lot of pressure from some people, including the Regulators and Public Utilities Commission, basically to design a system that will incentivize the construction of more gas-fired power plants because they say that's what you're going to need to back up the system and to back up wind and solar on the grid and to essentially make the grid more secure. As we touched on this in previous shows, this is a very kind of controversial proposition. Absolutely not everyone in Texas uh, agrees with this, and, and there's a lot of argument about it. But presumably, it's absolutely an option. If you think you can design a market to support gas-fired power plants that don't run it very often, but are only needed in emergencies, you could just the same design one to support energy storage facilities that, again, might not run all of the time, but are there and available when you need them in a crisis. Share your excitement. Look forward to seeing the results. Thanks. Well, yeah, we do just about have to leave it there. Before we go, of course, we always have to share our free electrons, items that we've brought in, perhaps that sometimes are a little bit offbeat. Emily, I think you have a fantastic one. So in order to avoid you having to follow it, Joseph, I'll let you do yours first. What's your free electron? Oh, geez. Now I feel totally set up for failure. <laughs> no, I'm, not, I'm just trying to set low expectations. That was all. <laughs> Story of my life, Ed. <laughs> um, my free electron is uh, there was a data visualization circulating on Twitter over the weekend which showed CO2 emissions, video produced by NASA, showed CO2 emissions as estimated by their modeling. CO2 uh, drawdown from forests, and it was, you know, they're kind of colored to indicate pollution, right? So brown for emissions and green for capture. It's a, it's a compelling video, and my career started in carbon cycling science, so I'm always kind of like still interested in it a little bit. But there was a tweet that kind of kind of got under my skin. It was like, if we could see this pollution, we would have done something about it a long time ago. And so I started, I spent a lot of the weekend thinking about like, would it be interesting to write a, it would be interesting to read. I don't know if it would be interesting to write a science fiction story about a subpopulation of humans that can perceive CO2 in the atmosphere visually, right? Like they evolved this weird ability to see in the infrared. And like, how would those people record Earth's history, right? Because they'd see it as like, periods of clarity and haze. And then how would they perceive like the Anthropocene, right? As, as CO2 has just gone way outside its previous geological cycling, like this would be an incredible shock. 
And uh, I don't yet have an explanation for why they developed this uh, evolutionary ability. But, you know, if I can figure that out, maybe I've got an interesting story to tell. I love it. Though. I think that's a fantastic idea. Yeah. Uh, no need to set low expectations. That actually was really interesting. It's a great thought. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Go on then, Emily. What's yours? So I was delighted to discover that other people share my uh, <laughs> particular fascination with Google reviews of power plants recently. Um, but it turns out that I spend a lot of time Googling the names of power plants because I need to confirm something about them. And that's often kind of the fastest way to do it as a gut check. And a lot of the time they show up with these reviews. So you'll just have, you know, 15 people leaving three to five star reviews of a power plant they saw going down the street. And a lot of the time they're very funny. They're not solicited, obviously. Sometimes they're actually helpful. So it'll be people talking about like if you work there, where to go into the construction entrance. But a lot of the time it'll just be people being like, what is that? I don't like it or I love it. Anyway, there's there's some really, really good ones out there. I think among my favorites are the ones that talk about people just like bringing their kids to go look at the power plant and having just generally interesting life experiences doing so. So yeah, check out Google reviews of power plants. It's uh, pretty funny. That they are great. So I'm just going to have to read. So you've been posting them on your Twitter feed. I have to read a few that I thought were particularly entertaining. Um, I liked a bull run fossil plant of uh, in Tennessee. I was in the market for some fossils and a, and a friend turned me on to bull run fossil plant. I thought to myself, why not buy fossils directly from the manufacturer? And the other one, here we go. And there's a you know, thoughtful one here, McDonough uh, power plant in Georgia, natural gas, 2.5 gigawatts, better than coal, so two stars. <laughs> and, and also uh, Labadi in, uh, in Missouri, the high emissions are worth it for the cool steam clouds it makes. <laughs> Yeah, very, very good. As Emily says, well, well worth looking those up. So, um, yeah, finally, to my free electron is something, something I've been actually worrying about, and to kind of take the mood down again. Something that has been sort of worrying me really about being um, in England, which is where I've been for uh, the past couple of weeks, and the temperatures here have been very high, and we've been hitting probably a new record high temperature for this country for June. And it just really hits me being here, and I've been here with relatives, seeing family and so on. It's really hit me how this country is just not set up for high temperatures. No one has air conditioning in their homes. It's, it's just the kind of uh, entire basis of the way you design your home for the weather is, of course, for it to be uh, warm in the winter. People don't really worry about heat in the summers and it's just one of those things where when you think about impacts of global warming you often think about the sort of the large scale and the spectacular and the fires and the rising sea levels and all the rest of it the other thing that's happening is just things get hotter and you have more uh, high extreme temperatures which causes kind of people to be uncomfortable and it's kind of miserable and it's hard to sleep at night. They have now on the weather here, they talk about how well you'll be able to sleep overnight because how hot it's going to be in your bedroom when you don't have aircon. And clearly for older people in particular, as we've been saying, these high temperatures can be fatal. So it's a, it's a real issue of not just kind of discomfort, but also a matter of life and death for some people. And again, nothing like living through something like this just to really bring home to you the reality of what it's like and as i say even something that perhaps isn't as sort of spectacular and headline grabbing 
as some of the impacts of climate change. It's just something that is really significant. And even in a well-off country like the United Kingdom, the costs of adjustment and the impacts of climate change are very real. So that was just my my thought from my, uh, as I say, my travels here this week. So anyway, we do have to uh, leave it there, though. So thanks very much to you, Emily, for coming in. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And many thanks to you, Joseph. Uh, many thanks to our producers, Sam Nash and Toby Biggins-Gilchrist. And above all, of course, many thanks to all of you for listening. As you know, we're always very keen to hear your thoughts, praise, criticism, comments, complaints, ideas for future shows, whatever it might be. You can find us on Twitter at, at The Energy Gang, and I'm at Ed underscore Crooks. And I'm also on Mastodon, where I am at Ed Crooks at Mastodon.energy. And I think you can find Joseph and Emily both on Twitter as well. And as I say, I would urge you to go and check out Emily's Google reviews of power plants. And also, we will definitely post a link or perhaps an example of the, it's a McKelvey diagram, right? Yes. Fantastic. So look out for that. We'll be back again in two weeks for all the latest news and views on what's next for the energy transition. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.